Welcome back to Insight on CAP Radio. I'm Beth Ruiak. In three days in the last week at Santa Anita Park, three horses died. The park is a thoroughbred racetrack in Arcadia, California, which is just outside of Los Angeles. And these deaths extend a growing history of horse deaths at the park. The races, however, still continue. The story tops this week's Capitol Chat, and state government reporter Scott Rod is joining me. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Beth. Let's talk a bit about that history. Um, take us back in time and give me some numbers. Well, going back to last year, there were 37 fatalities. Um, And that was something that raised alarms for a lot of people, both advocates and lawmakers. Um, And in years previous to that, there were actually higher numbers of deaths. um, But last year was one that really caused people to start start to take a look at it. Um, This year, since December, there have been five deaths. That's about on pace with what it was last year. Um, And considering that there was a lot of activity on this front, lawmakers passing legislation, advocates calling for reforms, the California Horse Racing Board uh, passing regulations. The fact that they're on pace with last year, there are some concerns there about, well, how much progress is being made. So to total the numbers then, are we looking at 42 overall since December of 2018, if you add the five more. Yeah. So from December of 2018, the start of the 2018 season, 2019 season, I should say, there have been 42 deaths. Yeah. The death on the Sunday, though, was um, made news headlines because of this detail, a collision. And that's different from some of the others. What happened? It was this kind of freak accident, yeah, during training where two co- two horses collided. And in terms of horse fatalities, that's pretty rare. It's it's this accident that you just don't typically see. Um, so people saw that, advocates and, and lawmakers saw that and said, okay, that's not the typical sort of fatality that we've been seeing. So, um, you know, there was, I wouldn't say less scrutiny. It's always devastating when a horse dies on a track, but it wasn't similar to the other Uh, deaths, which were typically breakdowns uh, during races or during training. And a breakdown is when a horse has some sort of injury, typically a leg injury, that uh, they won't be able to recover from. In terms of oversight, there's the California Horse Racing Board, and there's the California Legislature, and I'm sure there are a number of other groups and agencies involved. But with those two, what's happening with regulation and investigation? So the California Horse Racing Board is this pretty small department in state government. I mean, if you look at the map of California state government, which is very big, um, the official map of that, that the state releases, it's all the way down at the very, very bottom in terms of size. Um, so it's a small agency, but they um, have been under the spotlight under the, for the last couple of years for this reason. Um, so what the California Horse Racing Board has done is passed um, a number of regulations that change what sort of medications horses can get. They've changed um, how veterinarians can uh, view records, and they've also passed some regulations about um, ensuring that there's more transparency when there is a fatality, making sure that those records become available. Um, In terms of the legislature, there was a law passed last year that allows the horse racing board to suspend racing at a track if they feel that the conditions are unsafe. And then this year, there's 
pushes for more reforms, more transparency as well. And, you know, so you're seeing these changes happen. I should also say that there are efforts to, uh, this doesn't exactly address the fatality issue, but it's in line with this idea of trying to make the sport, I guess you could say more palatable for a 21st century audience. Um, they've done things such as pass a, um, or considering a ban on the riding crop. So they've done away with the traditional whip. It's now a crop that doesn't injure the horse, doesn't hurt them at all. It just kind of sends them a signal, but they're even considering banning that um, just because the optics of it look bad if you're hitting a horse with a, with anything. Um, and they've also considered things like, um, I reported on this last year, being one of the first states to have a concussion protocol for right. jockeys. And so those don't directly address this horse fatality issue, but there seems to be this growing effort to try to make the sport um, I guess you could say more humane or more palatable for a 21st century audience. Is there pressure or growing pressure to close the park altogether? And what's happening right now with the races that are happening today and over the next couple days and weeks? There is pressure, I would say, mostly from advocates, um, you know, such as you know, PETA um, is probably the leading voice on that front. Lawmakers, there really hasn't been much appetite expressed for, you know, um, an all-out ban or anything or shutting down the park. There have been calls for, you know, investigations, reforms, but uh, there hasn't been really calls from lawmakers to ban it. However, Governor Gavin Newsom, um, in an interview last year, you know, he signaled that he felt the sport had to evolve, had to change in order to survive. So he kind of signaled that, you know, the status quo in horse racing um that's not going to be able to persist um, if the if the if the sport is going to survive. On the flip side of that, um, horse racing is a very traditional. It's a sport that's very much rooted in tradition. They uh, people who follow horse racing, who work in horse racing, you know, they value sort of the tradition that horse racing comes from. So for a lot of them, um, swallowing some of these changes, some are easier than others, but um, they're a bit more. Um, I guess, averse to to seeing some of these changes in the sport. As you said, you've been working on some of these stories, but the numbers have changed and the investigations into why some of these deaths occurred is ongoing. But in comparison to tracks across the country, do you know where Santa Anita Park is? And it's kind of strange to say X number of deaths is typical or on some sort of standard. And um, I, I just like more context. It, I, I don't have a, a sort of a national perspective on it. I can say that it is, you know, in horse racing, horses, you know, during races, you know, unfortunately will die. I mean, they're typically it's not it's not very often. It's actually quite infrequent. Um, so, you know, and people in horse racing will say, you know, this is an unfortunate reality of the sport. But these horses are very well taken care of, um, probably as you know well taken care of as horses as you can find. Mm. Um, and so, in terms of uh, the numbers, it's hard to say, but it's certainly clear that the uh, dozens of, of fatalities that have happened uh, at Santa Anita Park over the course of the last year or so that's raised alarms. That's certainly higher than um, both. I would say what is typical and also what the public and lawmakers are, are willing to accept. Mm. You're listening to Scott Rod in this week's Capital Chat. The reporting on the situation at Santa Anita Park will continue, and you can find some of the past reporting at capradio.org. Since you're here, let's cover a few more topics, Scott. Uber is piloting a new pricing program. Would you explain? Sure. So it's being piloted at three airport locations in California, 
Sacramento, uh, Palm Springs, and Santa Barbara. And it allows drivers to increase their fares on their own. So they can raise it in 10% increments above the standard base rate that Uber sets. And they can raise it to five times the base rate. That's quite high. Um, from drivers that I spoke to, it sounds like that that wouldn't be used, that high of a rate wouldn't be used unless it's extraordinary circumstances. But um, they're allowing these drivers to have more control and more flexibility in terms of how they decide to operate. So if you get on the app and you're going to book your Uber ride, you do see the fare. You don't know it in comparison to other drivers. You just know what that fare is. Is the ability to move fares around in context with um, the volume of cars or an event, a particular time? Are there any other criteria? Sure. So if a driver decides to raise their rate above that sort of standard base rate, uh, the app will connect a rider with the lowest available price. So if everyone decides, you know, we're going to raise our rates a little bit, but there's that one driver who sticks with the base rate, that one rider will be connected with the person with the base rate. And so the idea is that you can rate, raise your rates a little bit, especially if you feel like there's really high demand. Uh, you might A driver might end up waiting a little bit longer to get that connect to get that connection. Um, but as far as the rider's concerned, um, they're really none the wiser in terms of their interface. Their, their, when they look at the app, they don't see anything different. They're not clued into if you know this is a slightly higher fare. They might notice it if it's significantly higher. They might say, oh, wow, I'm used to a $10 fare, not a $15 fare. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the difference won't be very significant. And I, I was able to get out to Sacramento International uh, yesterday. There's this little parking lot where all the Uber and Lyft drivers right. wait. And I spoke to a couple of drivers. It's a, this is a very new feature. So I was able to track down a couple of people who have tried it. Um, one who I spoke to, Adnan Badawi, he said that he thinks it's a good idea. He's been giving it a shot and he thinks that it's going to be a good options for drivers to have. If you go 10 miles, you're paying was $9, you're paying now $10, $10.50, It's not that much difference, my friend, but it makes difference to us as a driver. I mean, I'm paying for more gas, more maintenance, more uh, work on a car, it's a brand new car. I wanted to make the rider happy and more safe. So there you're hearing him say, it's a small increase for, <clears throat> for a lot of riders. And yet, if you are doing a 10-hour shift, which you can do, um, and how many of those 10-mile rides you have, it's sort of that little, uh, what they call the latte factor. Every dollar, every dollar 50 adds up by the end of the day. Exactly. So for riders, it's going to be small. But yes, for drivers, it can really add up. And at the end of the day, they might notice a difference. However, I also spoke to a woman named Kim Beaver who said that her and her daughter, who also drives for Uber, they gave this a shot and they weren't really big fans of it. So we set it at 1.5 for an hour, got no ride. And then she's like, well, mom, why don't you just go on to 1.0 and I bet you get a ride. The minute I hit 1.0, boom, I got my ride. So I think it's just going to be chaos and frustrating for people. You'll be waiting an hour to two hours to God knows how long. All right. That seems to indicate that you're definitely seeing the price difference there, whether you know the route or not. I know, for example, the app will show you a decrease in fare if you do a shared ride with one other person or four other people. So I haven't looked at the Uber app since this pricing has changed, but I think having the consumer know what's going on allows them to be very discerning in which ride they pick. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that's also, you know, she, as she said, she said it to, you know, essentially 50% higher than what the standard rate is. And if there was a lot of other drivers out on the road and they were sticking with the base rate, um, then the app is going to be unlikely to connect a driver with that, with a rider. Um, so, you know, again, it may be that it works best for um, smaller increments, small jumps, not maybe, you know, going uh, 50% higher than what the base rate is. But um, I, I think Uber is willing to test this out. And, you know, they see these three airport um, groups of drivers as essentially guinea pigs. They're saying, let's see where this goes. Another interesting thing that's going to happen in the coming days is that Uber is going to allow drivers to uh, lower the rate below the base rate. So mm-hmm. they can not only raise it, but they can lower it. And I think some people are wondering, okay, is this going to be a race to the bottom where suddenly people are setting it, you know, half the rate, a third of the rate just to get rides? So it's unclear what's going to happen. And I think everyone's interested to see. As soon as you started this story, I was thinking, oh, we're going to get into a bidding battle here mm-hmm. in which ride you pick. And suddenly we're we're uh, like online auctioning a bit. All right. I want to shift to one more topic, something that many news organizations, many government and political groups are watching for, interested citizens are paying attention. That is the state of the state message. And so far, what we know from Governor Newsom and his staff is... We're not sure. Um, <laughs> we're still we're still waiting on a confirmation. Um, the governor's office hasn't said anything publicly on it. You know, unlike the budget uh, proposal, they you know they don't have a hard mandate as to when you know they have to deliver right. this address. So they have some flexibility on it. You know, I think that they um, they're trying to find this window where you know where can the governor sort of break through you know these back to back jammed news cycles, especially with impe- impeachment hearings, and have an opportunity to address you know California. And I think I think this is a pretty significant state of the state. I mean, they're they're all significant, but here we're coming after the first year of of, of Newsom's uh, term. You know, he had set out some pretty ambitious goals at the beginning, and he was able to achieve some of them. wasn't able to achieve others. So I think this is an opportunity for him, sort of. I guess you could say maybe at the end of the honeymoon phase with lawmakers and the press, where you know he has to make the case as to you know highlight the things he's done. Um, give a nod to the things he wasn't able to accomplish and and give kind of a roadmap as to how he hopes to accomplish those things. The president's State of the Union message is scheduled for February 4th. So that's another thing taken into consideration. And I would imagine um, there's not enough nimbleness in a big address like this to suddenly find that there's a two-day break in the trial and here's the window when we can suddenly schedule the State of the State. That's unlikely to happen. I, I agree. I mean, um, you know, they. I, I think the governor's office is ready to, you know, jump onto things. They've shown a quickness to react to certain things, but in terms of delivering the state of the state, yeah, I don't think it's something that can be done at the drop of a hat. You know, I should say that I, I have heard that it's expected to be delivered in February, uh, perhaps mid-February, but, you know, again, that was uh, just sort of what I've been hearing. Nothing publicly said by the governor's office yet. All right, Scott, a lot of news lately in the world and certainly in California. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That is Scott Rod. He is Cap Radio State Government Reporter. Coming up as we continue the persistent, relentless effort by American women to earn the right to vote, I'll talk with historian and author Dr. Joanna Newman. Then at 10, you will hear NPR's special coverage of this day of the impeachment trial in the Senate. You're listening to Insight on Cap Radio. Insight.